And I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. Thank you for singing that song about heaven. It's a good focus for us, good reminder. I love that part where it gets to the let it be today. We sing the hymn of heaven. And uh, ironically, in God's sovereign plan, we'll be talking about eternal glories uh, in Romans chapter 8 this morning as well. In light of the fact that preaching is a spiritual discipline, requires the quickening of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit, the conviction, the encouragement of the Spirit, I think it would be appropriate for us to pray one more time and ask God to help us understand His Word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as I open up Your Word this morning that... um, What I'd say would be true, but also pointed and powerful. Lord, um, I've tried to preach on things like this before, and uh, these sort of things in the past have fallen flat. Uh, But Lord, uh, this just reminds me how much we need you, we need your spirit to open our eyes to behold these things to change the way we live. Lord, I pray that what we find in Romans 8, 28 through 30 today would not just be for theological purposes, for understanding, although that's important, but I pray that it would change our lives. That would change the lives of young people who are deciding what to do with their life. It would change the life of established adults. It would even change the life of those who have lived much of their life and now find themselves in retirement. I pray, Lord, that you would um, encourage us through your word to do what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so there is a handout that can be helpful to you. I'll have a PowerPoint that will point out some of the uh, major points of the outline. The handout is in the bulletin or it's available in the back. So if you wanted to grab that, you could. I, my plan is to take about a half hour here and work through three verses. So 10 minutes per verse. We'll see how that goes um, as we go along. In Romans 8, verses 18 through 30. Paul has a theme that is on his mind. He presents a premise about this in verse 18. And it has to do with present suffering and future glory. He begins by laying it out clearly in verse 18, this premise. And then he gives reasons why we need to live by the premise in the verses that follow, verses 19 through 30. The premise is that present sufferings, the sufferings of this present age, are not even to be compared with future glory. Now, as he closes out the reasons why we need to live that way, live in light of that sort of concept, 
that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing to future glory. Uh, Paul will describe how the Godhead's involved in our present sufferings to help us toward future glory. Um, he starts with the Holy Spirit, and we looked at that. We looked at his work um, two weeks ago. The Holy Spirit is groaning for us. He's actually praying perfect prayers for us um, so that we would follow and obey the will of God. And he does that in verses 25 through 27, or 26 and 27. Uh, but then he turns to the role of God, the Father, and he shows what God does. And that's what verses 28 through 30 are about. Did you hear me on that? That's what verses 28 through 30 are about. Sometimes we come to these verses and we want to know, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for us? But ultimately, they're about God. If you look, for instance, in verse 29, uh, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also. And then a little later, he, and then he also. These verses are about God and what he has done for believers to secure them amid the present sufferings that they experience. Now, that's what this passage is about. And But one of the things we have to ask when we come to biblical, biblical text is not only what is this about. This is about God doing some amazing foundational things for believers. But why? Why does Paul put these verses here in this passage? I mean, he could have put them anywhere. They're true. But why so much about God? Well, we'll learn more in this text about how God works on our behalf, and we'll see, I believe, that Paul intends this to motivate us to live for future glories now. Okay? So, in other words, Paul wants us to know all this stuff about God to motivate you, to stir you, right, where you're at, so that you would live for future glories right now. In this present age. That's why Paul gives us all this information. Paul wants us to love and live for God now. So he tells us a lot of things that God has done for us. Paul wants us to love God more than our homes. More than our TVs. More than our friends or even our family. Paul wants us to love God more than our careers or our hobbies. Whether that is your man cave, gardening, woodworking, football. God wants, Paul wants you to love God more than anything else in this world. And that's why these things are here. Heading now into my 50s. Now I'm holding on to 40s. I've got over two years left of the 40s. Okay, so don't, don't, don't you dare say I'm 50 yet. But heading into my 50s, in the last few years, I've started thinking seriously about retirement. Probably should have been thinking about this all along. But maybe you've been there before. You start sacrificing and saving and paying things off so that you can enjoy those years when you don't have to work every day anymore. One thing you learn is uh, whenever this concept hits you, hits your radar, is the value of living for the future in the present. The value for living for the future in the present. And the earlier you do this, 
the better it will be for you in some ways, at least financially. Now, I've seen people do all sorts of creative and sacrificial things so that they get more later in life. Well, that is an illustration, a physical illustration about retirement, and it speaks to really, I hate to say it this way, and I'm I'm preaching to myself as I look forward to this, uh, speaks to the fleeting value of money in a few final years of our lives. I've seen people do all sorts of calculating, figuring, writing it all out, columns, margins, pages, 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 getting ready for this. But how about living for our future eternal glory? You see, Paul wants to flip us so that our calculations have little to do with retirement, but much, so much more to do with glory. His aim in this passage is that we would live for future glories now. And so I want to learn more about what God does in this text, and then I'll remind you why it's here one last time. And so as we work through this text in the next few minutes, we come to some actions of God. We learn what God is doing to secure us, and really it's primarily twofold. What God is doing to secure us through his comprehensive promise and his comprehensive purpose in order to motivate us. So we start with the amazing, comprehensive promise of God in verse 28. I love verse 28. It's a great passage, one that demands all of our attention. Look at verse 28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, now I want to point out two things about this blessed promise that many of us have known and have thought of for years. First, the contents of this promise. And if we're trying to find what is the nature of the promise itself, where do you find the promise? Where's the nub of the promise found? It's right in the middle of the verse. Right in the middle of the verse, in these few words, uh, Paul gives the promise, all things work together for good. That's the content of the promise. And I think each little part deserves some attention. First, all things comes from a word that we'll see all throughout the rest of the chapter. We'll start seeing this word, all, 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 throughout the remainder of the section. The word all, or all things, speaks to something that's comprehensive. Describes any event that may occur in the lives of believers. Whether those events are things we would describe to be good or bad, they're part of the all things that occur. Now notice that Paul does not say that all good things will happen to believers. He does not say that. God is not as concerned with giving us all good things as he is in using all things for good in our lives. No doubt the all things includes the sufferings of the present evil uh, present age in verse 18. That's part of the all things here. So God uses even these present challenging experiences that we have in our lives. Okay, so that's all things. Now, to that, we then look at the words work together. Work together. And I need to 
point out a few important things here. First, it's my belief that verse 18 is a divine passive. In verse 19, it becomes clear who is the actor, who is the one doing all the work. And so I think we should bring that up to verse 18, or I'm sorry, verse 28. God is working all things together. Now, another thing I would say, this is not only a divine passive, this working together word that stands behind it speaks of causation, not observation. Okay, so God is not watching all things from heaven. He is working through them for the good. He is actively working all things together. To use two brief analogies, God is, it's, it's like he is weaving together all things in our life into a tapestry to produce the good. That's one analogy. Or the, the one I like even a little bit more, God is like a sculptor molding and shaping us. We might not like it when he chips away certain pieces of our lives or certain parts of our being, but he's doing this to conform us to a beautiful image that we will read about later. But what is God doing? What is he working together, all things for? Well, that's the final part, right? The good. If you keep reading in this, this promise, the, the good, uh, I think, as you read into verses 29 and, and verse 30, would include at least conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. In fact, there's something I do in my Bibles. When I get a new Bible, I usually go to Romans 8, and I circle the words, the good, and I draw an arrow down in my Bible to conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The good includes at least that. Maybe even the other things you'll see in the list, glorification, and so on. So what does that mean for me when I'm involved in an accident and total my car? God is working. He's using this for the good. Conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. What does that mean for me when I get cancer? God is working. He's using these things for the good. What does that mean when I lose someone I love? God is still working. He's using these things for the good. But the promise of God in this passage is not that we, uh, is that nothing that we experience in this world is meaningless. Everything that comes is intended by God to assist us on our journey to Christ-likeness and ultimately to the glory that we will experience in heaven. That's the content of the promise. All things work together for good. But there's something we've been assuming about the promise that we really haven't addressed so far. And so I want to look at it a little bit more closely. This I call the recipients of the promise. Who can be confident that God is working all things out for their good? And the answer is found in the beginning and the end of the verse, right? Text first says it's those who love God. 
Well, for those who love God, this is true. Now, this promise is for people who love God. This is not for everyone. And so the big question you should ask is, do you love God? Do you love God? Now, Paul doesn't normally speak this way about love. Normally, when God and us are in the equation and the word love is used, it's God's love for us. Okay, this is abnormal for Paul. This is our love for him. Now, Paul does not normally give us credit for anything. That's because he has got this view of mankind that's very low. Right? We are dead in sins. Completely dead and unable to help ourselves. Thus, no one of us could love God. That's how he normally talks. God loves us. Now, consistent with Paul's pessimism about mankind, though, he clarifies who the people are who actually love God with the final phrase. Okay, and you see that one. Those who are the called according to his purpose. You see, believers show genuine love to God because they are the ones whom God has called according to his purpose. God has a grand plan or scheme that he works out in life and in accordance with this plan, he calls out people to love him. Okay, now we're going to consider more about what the calling and the purpose are as we continue in the sermon. But for now, know the promise only relates to these people. And this twofold description of the one people I think is perfect. Right? It's perfect. The first one rests on me, those who love God. Yet that would be a really flimsy basis for all of verse 29 and 30 to rest on. If you're just like counting on me to continue to love God and that's why all these good things are going to happen, that would be very threatening. Matter of fact, I heard one preacher say this week, he said, it would be like basing a mountain on a marshmallow. You know, you know what the marshmallow is, that's you. Your love for God. So Paul adds a second part. The calling and the purpose of God, which now that's a foundation to build on, right? This purpose and calling of God awakens us to love. That's a foundation, but, but both are necessary. The personal, the individual personal, pri- uh, private, the, the divine, the divine part enables the personal. Right? And that's, that's in accordance with Paul's theology. No one is able to love God unless God does a pre-work. So the divine enables the personal. I think the personal confirms the divine. You see, Paul could have just written one or the other. And I'm so glad he wrote both. Okay, because the personal confirms the divine. We might, we might be here today spinning our wills and our minds and our intellects, trying to figure out whether we're part of the cult until we were blue in the face. 
But Paul gives this practical, but do you, are you loving? How do you know if you're called? Do you love God? Are you loving God? That's the personal confirmation of this. But God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his grand plan. That's God's promise to believers. It's comprehensive. And in light of that, I think Paul would ask you or tell you to live for him now. Live for God now. In light of these things. You've got this grand promise. God's working all these things together for good for you if you are a believer. So, live for him. Now, we got to keep moving, and we get down to verses 29 and 30. The second point, the comprehensive purpose of God, and how uh, God's purpose relates to believers. Now, the first word in verse 29 in most English Bibles is the word for, which reveals that Paul is unfolding in greater detail how God's purposes relate to those who love God. That is, Paul's unfolding unfolding more and more of the eternal purpose of God for believers. And so the way he goes about doing this in verses 29 and 30 is he describes an unbreakable chain of God's actions toward believers Again, to, I believe, motivate them. Look at with me at verses 29 and 30. Uh, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These are things that God has done to secure believers. And uh, we can be confident that future glories, our future glories, will far outweigh our present sufferings because God has secured us in these five significant ways. First, the text says, God foreknew us. And I want to point out a few things about this. Now, okay, we're getting into foreknowledge and predestination. And I know some of you have been licking your chops. You're thinking, man, I know he goes verse by verse, phrase by phrase. Can't wait till we get there. Okay? Um, I'm glad for your excitement, but let's keep our focus on God as we go through this. Okay? The word foreknowledge means to know beforehand. The word actually is not used very much in the New Testament. And one of my pastoral encouragements to you as we go through this next section is to allow the Scripture to control your views on these things. Okay? I was taught these things in a certain tradition and way as a young man. And I had to eventually compare what I was taught with Scripture and to decide, am I going to hold what I always held on these things? Or do I need to change it? And I want to encourage you to allow Scripture to inform your views. Okay, well, foreknowledge is an easy one, right? There are only five places this word is used in the New Testament, and only one of their time in Paul. So if you want to know what the the Bible actually says about foreknowledge, you could go to these five texts, and you could learn more. 
The only other time Paul uses it is, is in Romans 11 and verse 2. There we learn that God knew Israel, the nation of Israel, beforehand. Romans 11, 2. He knew Israel in a special way beforehand. And we'll, we'll talk more about when some of this may have occurred in just a second. In our text, the object of God's prior knowledge is not the Israelite people. It is also not some thing or event. Sometimes when people speak of foreknowledge, they think of like God knowing things or events or actions that would occur. That's not the case in this text as well. If you were reading in your Bible, it says, those whom, okay, God foreknew people. Those whom, okay, now what people see talking about. I think uh, as Paul is writing to the Romans, he's describing God's foreknowledge of believers, of us, those who know Jesus Christ. This word then speaks of God knowing believers before they knew him. But when did that happen? I would encourage you to write down one other passage and look it up. It's one of the other five occurrences of the word foreknowledge in the Bible. Really the only passage that clearly answers, in my opinion, when God foreknew someone. It's 1 Peter 1 verse 20. And I'll read it to you. 1 Peter 1 verse 20. Now this is in reference to God's prior knowledge of Jesus, the Son. It says, He was foreknown when? Before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. Okay, so undoubtedly what scriptures declare here uh, is that, by, by Peter's testimony, is that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world was even laid in eternity past. Consequently, then, Paul likely means that God's foreknowledge of believers is from of old, from before time, before even the foundations of the world were laid down. That is, foreknowledge is God's pre-temporal knowledge of those who would love him. Okay, that's foreknowledge, and it is true. God is God previous to our existence, knew us and loved us. Now, I, I want to continue. The next word is predestination. He has also predestined us. And again, this is the word I think that some of you maybe were licking your chops for. Finally, right? He got there. Well, I want to start simple here. Okay, first of all, first observation. The word is here. It's in Romans 8.29. And it's not just in, like, the Brent English version. Okay, it's not like I just, you know, I really believe in predestination, so I'm going to just, like, slide it in here. No, it's here. It's in the Bible. So we can't say, well, I don't believe in predestination. Right? We can't say that. I mean, you can, but you shouldn't. Why? Because it's here. It's in the Bible. 
Okay, so the word is here. But it means, I believe, to pre-plan a destiny. To determine in advance. It's a compound word that means to determine in advance or to pre-plan a destiny. In other words, predestination is God's pre-temporal planning or determining something. But the question is what? And that's where you have to look to the context of each passage to figure it out. And instead of allowing what I've always been taught, what I've always heard on predestination to affect me here, I want to try to you know, silence all those voices for a second and let the scriptures speak to that. Okay? So regarding the word predestination, there are only a few places it's used again. All right? And uh, what I want to give to you is just a fruit of, of what I've seen in uh, different New Testament texts about this. And there are really two categories of way, ways the word is used. Okay, Who or what is predestined in these passages? That's what we're looking at. What's the object of the predestination? What was the object of what was predetermined or preplanned? Uh, and I found in, in two texts uh, a, a common thread that there was something that was predetermined before the world, and that is the events of the cross of Jesus Christ. So you could write down these two references, and I'll kind of lead you through them for just a moment here, but in Acts 4 and verse 28, if you remember this passage, Peter and John lead the people to consider how the rulers and the kings have gathered together against Jesus in fulfillment of Psalm 2. They're quoting Psalm 2 in this text. And in those prayers, as they're leading the people, they say that these rulers came together to do whatever, and this is what the text says, to do whatever God's hand and plan had predetermined to take place. That is, God had determined in advance that Jesus must suffer and die on the cross. Okay, so the events of the cross were the object of God's predestination. This is what he marked out beforehand as, as what would happen. From eternity past, he marked it out in the present temporal world that this would happen. And Paul joins the club in his views regarding this. In 1 Corinthians 2.7, he talks about God's wisdom found in the cross, and he describes it as something that God predestined. If you remember the text, he says, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they would, would have known, they would have never participated in crucifying Jesus. And so consequently, it is established on the basis of these two texts, on the basis of Scripture, without any doubt, that God knew that Jesus would be crucified for our sins before those events ever took place. Jesus was predestined for the cross. Aren't you glad? If you're glad, would you say amen? Amen. amen. We're glad for this, right? Now, believers are also predestined. Uh, there are two other places, only two other places, where the word is used, and they're both found in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, verse 5, and Ephesians 1, verse 11. And there, as you're reading, it's just obvious. You just read through the Bible. Who or what is predestined? It's we, believers. We are the objects of God's predestination. God predetermined our destiny 
which in Ephesians 1 verse 5 leads to the adoption of sons and daughters through the work of Jesus. Ephesians 1 and verse 11, we are the objects again of God's predetermination. Having been predestined by God, we've obtained an inheritance. And can I dare ask this question, like I asked the previous? Are you grateful that God predetermined that you would be adopted and enjoy a heavenly inheritance? If you are, say amen. 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 So thankful for this. You see, when I read my Bible, I don't grimace when I come to the word predestined. It's not a bad word. It's a good word. I rejoice when I see the word. Okay, now, when we come to Romans 8, verse 29, I think it follows along with the two Ephesians passages. God predetermines believers for conformity to the image of his Son. That is, God determined in eternity past that believers would be conformed to the image of his Son. And whatever God determines will happen, guess what? It will happen. It will happen. Now, I want to stop and just pause and say, men and women, there's nothing controversial about predestination. It's good. It's true. It's what the Bible says. If any controversy exists, it might be over the word election. And the word elect isn't in this passage, so we won't deal with it. Now, I don't think there's controversy there at all either. But the point I would make about predestination is don't let anyone rob you of the joy of predestination. The destination that God marked out in advance for all believers is that they would look like Jesus. And he did this so that Jesus would have, as the text says, would have many brothers and sisters. So that we'd begin to look like Jesus. Ever seen like two brothers that just have a family resemblance? You're like, man, they have to be brothers. Or two sisters. God is working in such a way, he predetermined that we'd be conformed to the image of Jesus, that we'd look like him so that he would have many brothers and sisters. That's what this text is saying. Now we need to move along, and I can go a little bit more quickly through the next. The third chain in this unbreakable work of God in the life of believers is calling. After God foreknew and predestined us, he calls us out. This is when we move, in my opinion, from eternity past to the present. This is God calling out believers for salvation. Now, I would point out uh, at least one thing here, and that is, again, who are the objects of the calling? I I think we've seen it's those whom God has already foreknown and predestined. But I would add to that the idea it's, it's all those whom he's done these things for. I think at this point, this is one of the reasons why some theologians would talk about the effectual or the effective calling of God. That when God calls, it happens. And I think one of the ways you come to that conclusion, you just keep reading the chain, right? You keep reading. It's, okay, those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, and those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified. It's not like people are, are falling out along the way. And those whom he justified, he glorified. That's why we'd say it's, it's an effective calling by God. It's, it works every time. That's calling. And then it, it also leads to justification, which is in, uh, one that we've seen and talked about much in Romans. 
This is God's legal declaration that we're no longer guilty for our sins because of Jesus' work being applied to our account. Jesus endured the punishment for our sins in the cross. Thus, we are made righteous. We are justified in him. And it ends with glorification. Well, closes with glorification, which brings the whole argument to a close. Remember up in verse 18, which started this big, long section was the mention of future glory. And he ends it with glorified. So this passage is all about future glory, future glory, future glory. But here, interestingly enough, and many of you have seen this, I've heard you all talk about this. Uh, here he doesn't describe it as future, right? It's something that's already been done. From God's perspective, this is true of us. We've also been glorified. It's, as, it's guaranteed it will happen. It's as good as done in the eyes of God. You, you've heard good preaching on this before, I'm sure. Paul's looking at the believer's glorification from the perspective of God. It's guaranteed. Now, as we close, this is what God does for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. He secures us with this unbreakable chain, five links that cannot be broken. In light of that, won't you live for him today? We started by describing the value of saving now for retirement. Financial advisors proclaim the earlier and longer you live this way, the better. My task as a preacher this morning has been harder. I call you on the authority of God's word to live for future glories now. This is a spiritual call. It requires the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to see it. It requires the Holy Spirit to enable you to live this way. But may he do this in us. This is how great men and women of God have lived through every generation of this world. Through the present sufferings. By knowing they're not even worthy to be compared to the future glory. This has led people to give up everything, to go to China, to go to India, to go to the Philippines, to go to Israel. It's led believers to leave parents or children or grandchildren, to do something radical and risky in light of the great future eternal glories that await us in heaven. It's been my prayer that you and I would live this way. I, I know there are things that rival and outshine my love for future glory. I pray that God would change me. That I just wouldn't want more TV. I wouldn't want more comfort. I wouldn't want a second column of finances to build for retirement. That those wouldn't be my calculations. But that I'd be thinking future glory, future glory, future glory. How about you? May God en en enable you through, I think, the, the meaning of this text and why it's here 
to know God secured you in the present and into the future. So live for him. Let's pray together. Father, you know in this conclusion I mentioned uh, different things that might distract us. A career. But Lord, I, I didn't even and perhaps should have also mentioned sin. Lord, we get so drawn in by our own lust and enticed towards sinfulness that we often live for now. Lord, I pray that the aim of Paul in this text would compel us to move forward. I pray that we would abandon those things that distract. I pray that we would be willing to give you our life, our career, our ambitions, our goals, our desires, our amusements, and live for eternity now. Lord, I cannot awaken one person to that by myself. I can't do it. I can't get people to live now in light of the future. But you can, and we pray that your spirit would do it today. Change us, O oh Lord. Help us to live whatever life we have left for eternal future glories. Help us not recline, but help us be risky and radical so that we could point people to Christ with all of our lives. And we pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.